We are studying John chapter 5, as you know. And uh, I talked to a pastor friend of mine today who actually laughed at me because I told him where we were in the Gospel of John. And he knows how long we've been going through the Gospel of John. He said, so where are you? He thought I'd say something like, ah, chapter 15 and moving right along. And I said, chapter 5, he actually broke out loud laughing at me. And I said, but we're having a grand old time. And we are really moving through John 5 at a very slow pace and having a good time. At least I am. I don't know if you guys <laughs> I sometimes feel sorry for you guys. I move so slowly, you, you probably feel like if I was to move any faster, I'm afraid I'd get the bends or something coming up too fast. But anyhow, we're, we're in John 5, which as you know is a turning point in the Gospel of John. The reason it is a turning point is because of the very things we are studying here. Jesus, as you know, in John 5, comes to the pool of Bethesda, which is right near St. Anne's Church in Israel, in Jerusalem. Just a glorious sight, which you would love to see on a live tour. I know you would. Jesus healed this layman there, and it caused quite a stir and quite a ruckus. Out of that comes this incredibly deep, teaching about his deity. One of the most wonderful sections and definitive expressions of his deity to be found among any of his teachings. And I was reading today some of the words of W.E. Beterwolf that struck me in the light of all that I see here in the Gospel of John. He said that a man who can read the New Testament and not see that Christ claims to be more than a man is the kind of a man who could look over all the sky at high noon on a cloudless day and not see the sun. And that's so good. I I find that to be especially true in the Gospel of John. I am amazed. You know, when I came to Christ the very first week, somebody shoved the Bible into my hands and flipped it open to John and said, Here, start reading right here. This is the place to start. And here I am after all these years studying John. Now, I've read through it many, I don't know how many times, like so many of you. But I've never studied it in detail. And the more I get into the details of John, the more amazed I am at how remarkable Jesus Christ really is. And I'll tell you something else. The more I study John, the more I learn about Jesus Christ the less satisfied I am with superficial views of who He is and what He is all about. I long to know more about Him. The more I understand of the deeper things of Christ here in the Gospel of John, the more I want to know the deeper things of Christ. And we are in a passage that reveals the deeper things of Jesus Christ, His deity. I think that the more you know Him, the less you're satisfied with trivialities and generalities about Him. For example, you contemplate this thought that as to his deity, he had no mother. And that as to his humanity, he had no father. You realize that Jesus Christ was God, not because he was virgin born, but that he was virgin born because he was God. And on it goes, the more you study, the richer it gets, and the more you find yourself in adoration wanting to honor and to praise and extol Jesus Christ as our Savior and our God. 
And I love just watching him in the pages of Scripture, how he interacts with people. Have you ever thought this thought? Have you ever thought to yourself, I wonder what God would do if he was here right now. I just wonder if he was stuck in this situation, I wonder what God would do. As I look in the pages of the Gospel of John, I realize that I know how God would act if he was here in my place because he came here. He has been in my place. And he recorded his life. He recorded his actions into the pages of the Bible so I could study how he has acted in my place as a human being and then follow on in his footsteps. As John said later in his epistle, his first epistle, if we say that we know him, we ought to walk as he walked. And here is all of the example and record of his life that I need to do that. So we're working our way through John 5. And we have been looking at these seven expressions of his deity. Here we have already looked at two of them. First of all, we find that his deity is expressed in his works. Verses 16 through 18. Last time we talked about how his deity is expressed in his will. And this time we're going to talk about how his deity is expressed in his intelligence and in his sovereignty and his divine honors. Next time we'll go on to finish off the last two. But I want to draw your attention to John 5 to verse 17. And here Jesus answered them. This is after he has healed the lame man. He says, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. And we've studied that in detail. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. John notes that specifically because of what Jesus is about to say. And he wants us to get the idea in his narrative that this is the thrust of the teaching that follows, as well as the understanding of his enemies, which was the reason they wanted to kill him and did not stop until they had done so. So in verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. And last time we saw that that is a, an explanation of how his will is one with the Father's. He has no other will other than the Father's. We come then to verse 20. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, to this end, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So let's talk about this third main expression of his deity here in verse 20, and that is his intelligence. You may not see it at first glance, but it is definitely here. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now look at this expression here in the middle of the verse. Jesus says that he shows him all things that he himself does. Now, in a very similar vein as the last time, I want to say to you that this is not a statement of inferiority. 
The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. When we read that the Father loves and the Father shows as concerning Jesus Christ, we must not suppose that these things imply any kind of superiority on the part of the Father, nor do they imply any kind of an inferiority on the part of the Son as to their divine nature and essence. So that as you look at this statement, you have to realize something. This is not the love of an earthly parent for a beloved child. And this showing here is not the showing of a teacher to an ignorant student. We don't have a student here who doesn't understand, who doesn't know and must be shown. What we have here are expressions, expressions of the relationship between two persons of the Trinity, expressions in human language to describe a divine relationship, expressions in human language which fall so utterly short of being able to communicate that which is infinite and divine. We have expressions accommodating our weaker capacities as human, but these are expressions of the divine. So you must understand that right up front as you read these terms. We're reading human language that is being used in an effort to describe God and it falls so woefully short. So that you can readily understand the difficulty of words to convey any idea of relationship between the members of the Trinity. I think you can get that very quickly. So this is not a statement of inferiority. It is rather a statement of equality. That's what it is. It's a statement of equality, specifically of infinite intelligence. Read it again. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. And He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. What we have here in plain language is another indicator of the deity of Jesus Christ. Let's put it this way. How many of you have young children in your home. You know what it's like to deal with them on mathematics, right? Now, if you have real young children, perhaps a first grader, and they begin coming around with arithmetic, remember arithmetic? That's right before math, which is right before algebra, which is right before trigonometry and calculus. You remember arithmetic. Just want to get you back into it. So let's say you have a first grader who comes to you and they want to talk about arithmetic and things like that, what would be the value of you taking out an algebra problem and showing it to your first grader and explaining X, Y, Z, all these things, and then saying, and here is the solution to this problem. X, parenthesis, Y minus Z, equals three, parenthesis, X, you know, and on and on. What would, be the, what would be the value of that? Why? Because you would be talking to someone who has absolutely no capacity of understanding what you are saying. In the same way, ask yourself this question. Who is capable of understanding all the ways and workings of God? You say, redeem man. No, no, no. If you're a Christian today, you think about your understanding of the things of God. 
You think about how slowly you learn and how you must be taught by the Holy Spirit. Yes, but how slowly you learn. So you cannot understand all of the things of God. You say, well, may, well a holy angel could. No, not even a holy angel because the Bible says that the angels even desire to look into the things of salvation that go on between God and His people that He has saved. That means they too have a limited knowledge of God and of His ways, though they dwell in an unveiled view of His glory and His splendor. So when you ask the question, who is capable to understand all the ways and the workings of God, then you very quickly come to the conclusion that it would have to be a mind equal to God's. It would have to be an intelligence equal to God's. But when you come to John 5.20 and it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, you realize that Jesus Christ has to be the same in mind and intelligence as the Father if He is to measure out the fullness of the Father's mind perfectly. If He is to know what the Father knows. And if you've been with us, you realize we've already talked about Jesus said the Father's working, so I work. The Father works on the Sabbath, I work on the Sabbath. The Father does good deeds on the Sabbath, I heal this lame man. Why? Because we're one in works. Last time we saw that his, the Father's will was the Son's will. And therefore the Son had no will apart from the Father's. If he does the works of the Father, if he has the will of the Father, you quickly come to the conclusion and find it even in his teaching, he also has the mind of the Father. You know what we're looking at here? When Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that he himself does, we are in fact face to face with an omniscient mind, the omniscient mind of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at. That is what he is explaining to these people who are listening to him. Psalm 147 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power, and his understanding is infinite. That is what you have in the mind of this man, Jesus Christ, as he speaks to these people. He is saying, I have the mind of God. I am God. My mind is equal to the Father's. It is omniscient mind of God. Now think about who we're looking at here. We're looking at Jesus Christ, and He is our Savior. Do you realize how much He knows about you today, right now? One of my favorite passages that has to do with the omniscience of God, how He knows everything, is in the book of Job, and I want to take you there. I just want to read through it with you. In Job chapter 38, verse 1. Job was, as you know, a wonderful man of God, holy man, blessed of God. And you know the trial that came upon him out of the middle of nowhere, really. We know where it came from because we have it recorded for us, but he didn't. And he's under this tremendous attack of Satan. And, you know, he's lost his family. He's lost his flocks. He's lost his buildings. In one moment of time, from being a rich, wealthy man with a big family to being effectively a pauper with no family, and the only family he had left was his wife, and I think that he was wondering if 
maybe she shouldn't have gone with everybody else when she said to him, why don't you curse God and die? I think at that point he was wondering if maybe it wouldn't have been better if she had gone the way of everyone else. So here he is, no money, no family, and a wife who is no help at all, and only adds to his affliction. So as time goes on and he gets sicker and sicker and his body swells up and he's got pus everywhere and he's scraping his body with pieces of pottery, and then his friends come to comfort him and they make him only worse. In the middle of it all, he begins to wonder if God really understands his situation. If God really understood and knew every little detail about him and his heart, why would he allow this kind of a thing to happen to him? So the farther the whole thing goes, the, the more Job's trial increases, the more he's having difficulty really believing that God understands everything about him. And I love the way the Lord brings his trial to the end and, and shows Job just how much he knows about him and everything else. And I love the fact that in Job 38, God speaks in relationship to things that are so worldly. They're things in this world. They're things in the creation. And it's all pointed at this idea that he completely understands everything in this world, everything around Job and everything in Job. It's just a marvelous revelation of God's omniscience. Look at Job 38.1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, This far you will come and no further, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on the form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and upraised. The upraised arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light? What a great question. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? When you turn on the light, where does the darkness go? When you turn off the light and the darkness comes back, where was it? Some great questions. That you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home. Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered into the treasury of the snow? I love that one. How many of you here have ever been in the snow? It's a good question for Southern California people. The snow is great, isn't it? I was born in Glendale and grew up in Anaheim and Long Beach and surfed in the ocean and all of that. 
But when I moved to Michigan and found snow, what an experience that was. In Michigan, the winter there, it was kind of a wet, snowy winter, and the, the snow would melt really fast. And then it would get really muddy and all of that. But then I moved to Minneapolis. And in Minneapolis, it snows and it stays. And then it snows some more and stays and snows and stays and 65 below with the wind chill factor and pipes burst in the middle of the night and all that, that was quite an experience. I used to drive to work in the Minneapolis airport in the snow and the van would be sliding on the icy roads because there was fresh snow, it never melted and it was one of the more interesting times in my life. I remember going out to go to work, which was 11 o'clock at night because I worked graveyard shift cleaning toilets in the Minneapolis airport. Uh, It was bad enough that I had to think about where I was going and what I was going to do. But to step into 35 below weather, all that snow. Anyway, that's kind of the wrong circuitous route to get to where I'm going. But how many of you are aware of the fact that not only is the snow beautiful, Like when you are in the top of the mountains and there's not one puff of wind and you're maybe 12,000 feet up and the the snow's coming down, it's just floating like this. It's one of the most awesome things in life, I think. How many of you are aware that every single snowflake that falls is absolutely unique from the last one that fell? There are no two snowflakes alike in all of creation. They're all unique. God says to Job, Have you looked into the treasures of the snow? (laughs) I know it's cold when it falls, Lord. But these are some great questions. Or have you seen the treasury of the hail? I always wondered about that. You know, it'll rain and rain and rain and rain, and then hail will fall for about 60 seconds, and then it's gone. And you're looking at the... Where does he keep that? You know, it's so rare that I see it. I wonder where he keeps it. And then it's gone. Which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. And of course, you see that in the Old Testament. By what way is light diffused? What a great question. Or the east wind scattered over the earth. Just on and on. God is saying... I know about this, I know about that, I, know, I think about this, I think about the wind, I think about the light, I think about the darkness that leaves when the light comes, I think about every little snowflake that falls. In fact, I'm so into snow that I design everyone uniquely as it just drops into the sky. I know about all these things. Job, don't you get the point? Don't you think I know all about you? And then, of course, he goes on to deliver Job from his trial and bless him. And I know that from that point in his life, Though Job had difficulties that came and went throughout the rest of his life, his understanding of the God who understood him was so permanently and radically altered that he had a rest in God from that day forth that could never be taken from him, certainly not by the devil who had taken it from him in that time period in his life. So when I look at the omniscience of God and when I see Jesus say, I know what the Father knows, I know everything the Father knows, I realize he knows everything about me. And I don't want to make the mistake of Job. And I've caught myself there, as you have. Well, Lord, do you really understand? I mean, if you did, why is this happening to me? 
How could a God of love this and that and the other? And yet, you go to Matthew 10. Why don't you hop over to Matthew 10 from Job? And you see these most encouraging words of Jesus as he shows how God uses his knowledge to bless and to care for his children. Here Jesus in Matthew 10:29 He says, "Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? It's like a penny. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will." He says, "But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." Here Jesus is is trying to tell his followers of the active, all-knowing mind of God that doesn't miss even one little tiny detail of anything going on in life. He says, doesn't one sparrow fall to the ground, but your father knows it. And this could be translated very honestly and true to the original Greek text. It could be translated that not one sparrow hops without your father knowing it. It's the idea that there isn't one little sparrow who's looking around, spots a worm a little bit away, does a little hop to get to it, that God isn't aware that he made that hop. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Jesus is saying there's not one little hop a bird can make that God isn't aware that he made that hop. He's in a discussion with Gabriel up in heaven, and Gabriel's talking about this project he's on with Michael. And God is listening. He's going, yeah, Sparrow just hopped. Go ahead, I'm listening. I can watch Sparrows and listen too. I can do a lot of things at once. (laughs) And the thought is so encouraging that here is Jesus declaring his omniscient mind. Here is Jesus and Matthew declaring that as God, what, what God does with that omniscient mind. He takes it And he says in verse 31, he says, Do not fear, therefore. He says, All the hairs on your head are numbered. God knows them all. You know what that means? You're aware that your hair falls out. For some of you, it grows right back so quickly. For others of you, it just keeps falling out. But you're aware of that. And so that means God has to keep track. So up on his chalkboard in heaven, where he has all the lines with the little angle thing through it, And here's your head, here's Bill's head, here's Mary's head over here, and here's Bob's over here. And some heads are easier than others, and they only have a few marks. But he has to go back and forth updating all the time. Here, Joe lost a few, but a few more grew in there. So God is always monitoring, in order for this to be true, God is always monitoring the hairs on your head. So he's in a conversation with Gabriel and Michael and they're talking about a project they're on. He says, yeah, a sparrow just hopped. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, I'm listening. I can watch a sparrow and listen. And besides that, uh, Bill just sprouted two new hairs on his head. And uh, the unfortunate thing is four are gone, so he is losing the battle. But go ahead, I'm listening. I can think about a lot of things at once. So the great thing is that God, Jesus takes this omniscience and uses it to bless and to care for us. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. 
I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He was thinking about the omniscience of God and what that does for your personal relationship with Him. He put it this way. He says, God sees you much as if there were nobody else in the world for Him to look at. If I have as many people as there are here to look at, of course, he said, my attention must be divided. But the infinite mind of God is able to grasp a million objects at once and yet to focus as much on one as if there were nothing else but that one. Therefore, you tonight are looked at by God as much as if throughout space there were not another creature but yourself. Can you conceive of that? He said, suppose the stars were all blotted out in darkness. Suppose the angels were all dead. Imagine the glorified spirits above are all gone, and you alone are the only one left, the last man. And there is God looking at you. What an idea, he said, that is to think of, that there is only you to be looked at. He goes on to say this, How steadily he could observe you. How well he would discern you. But hear this, God really does look at you this night as much, as entirely, as absolutely, without division of sight, as if you were the only being his hands had ever made. Can you grasp that, he said. God sees you with all his eyes, with the whole of his sight, you are the particular object of his attention at this very moment. God's eyes are looking down upon you. What a wonderful thought. That thought should cause you to rejoice. You see, we're not like the pagans of old who are afraid that all he's going to be focusing on is the very worst about us. I read about... How in old times and Bible times and pagan times before Christianity, when the Grecians would worship the images of their gods, it was said that when the spiders stretched their webs across the eyelids of the image of Jupiter, that the people would get really excited. And the attendance at the Jupiter temple would go up because the people felt that when the spider's webs were covering the eyes of Jupiter... It was preventing Jupiter from seeing their sins. And in their poor, feeble way, they thought that they were then able to come and worship and he wouldn't be seeing all their weak points and focusing on all their bad parts. And so in a way then, they were very grateful for the insects that would cover up the eyes of their God. But you see, that isn't the God we serve. The God that we serve set his son to die for us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He views us as though we're the only living creature on earth, each one of us. He knows us through and through, and He knows the very worst about us. And yet He loves us. Think of that. You know the very worst about yourself, and yet He loves you, knowing the very worst about you. What does He do with His omniscience? He scans your life. And then he moves inwardly by his spirit to make intercession for you in your weakness. And he is ever and always moving deep down within to pull you into the light. And at the same time, he's bringing blessings on the outside through the brethren, to, through the work of the ministry, through his will in your life. 
He's working within. He's blessing without. And all the while, he knows the worst about you. And what he does is he so works so deeply, so richly, according to his knowledge of you, that you experience his love to such a degree that you long to turn from your sin. You long to allow him to change you. And it's the love of God that draws you to repentance, initially in salvation and then after. And it's because of his deep, intimate knowledge of you, he's able to work the word in my mind is custom. He's able to work such a custom job on you because he knows what your weaknesses are. And he combines the attribute of his love with the attribute of his omniscience and the attribute of his holiness and brings a great change within you and molds you and shapes you into the image of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says that the Father shows him all things that he himself does. It is not a statement of inferiority. It is a statement of equality. It is a statement that brings us up to understand that here we are looking at and dealing with the omniscient mind of God. And then he says in John 5.20, he says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. I love that. They have just seen a man completely paralyzed who had been there for years and years and years, unable to raise himself up to get to the churning of the water and all of that for the healing he was hoping for. They have seen that. And what he's effectively saying now is this. You haven't seen anything yet. If you think this is something, wait until you see what's coming next. And what is coming next is he was to raise to life those that had been dead, I mean, we are talking about a remarkable person here. And he goes on to tell us in this passage that in the future, he is going to act as governor and judge of the human race so that you haven't seen anything yet. And as we move on to the Gospel of John, we're going to see more and more of his great and awesome deeds. So here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, equal to the Father in works, equal to the Father in will, and equal to the Father in intelligence. He is, in fact, God. And then the fourth thing here in our chapter that we're moving through slowly. He is equal in sovereignty. Look at John 5.21. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, mark this statement, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. What a statement. If you don't connect it quickly, I'll connect it for you. Just a glance or two and a thought or two will quickly connect this up to the series we're going through on Sunday. He gives life to whom he will. Gives life. Seems to include both bodily and spiritually because we see him raising the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He raises others from the dead. And spiritually, in giving salvation... The dead will be raised to stand before him in judgment, those that die without Christ. Those that die in Christ will be given new bodies in heaven. It, it sweeps in all of this when he says, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. But we're going to talk more about that because there's more of that coming. He just sort of raises the issue here. What I want to draw your attention to just for a moment is this. He gives life to whom he will. He has only to will, and he can bestow life. 
It is never said of any prophet in the Bible or apostle that they could act at will to do mighty deeds. Even someone said to me the other day concerning the gifts, we were talking about the apostles and the point came up, no apostle could ever do a mighty work at will. You couldn't turn them loose in a hospital and have them heal everyone up and down the aisles. Paul the Apostle was sick himself, and he who had given sweatbands out and that kind of thing and handkerchiefs and seen unusual miracles could not heal himself. No apostle, no prophet could ever do a mighty work at will. It was always the will of God working through them at the time and in the place situationally according to God's sovereignty. Jesus said, even so, the Son gives life to whom He will. He can bestow the highest of all gifts, which is life, and He can do it at will. Now that is a statement then that can only refer to the sovereignty of God. David understood the sovereignty of God, and it could certainly be applied here to Christ. In First Chronicles, just listen, First Chronicles 29, 11, He said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. That is sovereignty. In First Chronicles twenty nine twelve, in just the next verse, both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. That's what the sovereignty of God is all about. It means He's in control of everything all the time. He's never out of control. He was never given control. He is always in control because He is God. Jesus takes the highest possible miraculous work, which would be that of giving life to raise someone from the dead, or of giving life and salvation, which is even a harder work, and of raising the dead unto eternal life after they die here. And he says, I can do that at will. All I have to do is just will it, and it happens. Are you getting the point, folks? You see how deep his message is? They're mad that he made one little statement that it implied that he was making himself equal with God. He's effectively saying, oh, you don't even know the half of it. You don't understand any of it. As long as you're mad, you're going to kill me anyhow. Let me tell you some more. You might as well really get the full understanding of who I am so that when you kill me, you will be fully guilty. And you will deserve the hell that you go to. Something like that. Not quite like, but something. But he really is giving them the understanding. And so his sovereignty. And then in divine honors, and as we come to verses 22 and 23... We see that all judgment is going to be rendered by Christ as God. And again, this is what you would call in public speaking a signpost. You know what a signpost is? When you're driving down the freeway and you wonder where you are, all of a sudden a sign will come up and it will say, Aliso Viejo, next five exits, whatever. Oh, I'm near home. So you know where you are. That's a signpost. When you're on a long trip and it says... San Diego, 100 miles. You know that it's going to be a while. That's a signpost. Tell you what's coming next. Jesus puts up a signpost here of what's coming in just a few minutes in this speech, this revelation that he's giving. 
And at this point, it's just a signpost. He develops it down farther, a few verses. But the point that he brings out here is astonishing. And I just want to touch on it. Then we're going to get into it deeper next time. But he says in verse 22, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now how much might all be all? We're learning this, aren't we? And you know what's amazing as you begin to learn it? is how you find it's everywhere. This all thing with God. All judgment has been committed to the Son. So he just barely opens up the issue here. And we'll get more into it next time. But what I want to show you right now is that this was an astonishing new thought to the Jews. In this sense. It was an accepted Jewish teaching that there would be a final judgment. And that you would face judgment. After you died, you would stand before God. That was an accepted Jewish teaching. Nothing new about that at all. But when Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, they would have found that very, very difficult to accept. For this reason. The Jews firmly held that the judge on the last day would be God himself. So that no one else could have that authority. Further, we might perhaps from our vantage point think that the Messiah would be the judge and that the Jews had simply gone astray and failing to see that Jesus was the Messiah. We, see, we might read that into it because of what, all the information we have. They did fail to see that he was the Messiah. But there was another difficulty for them here. And that was this. They did not expect the Messiah, whoever he might be, to be the judge of mankind after they died. So yes, they were looking for a Messiah. Yes, they missed their Messiah in Christ. But further, it didn't matter who the Messiah was when he came, they still never expected the Messiah to be the judge. They expected God to be the judge. According to everything I could find out, in the whole range of rabbinic literature, there is no passage that says the Messiah would be the judge of the world. So when Jesus is standing here and he says this to them, they're already mad enough they're plotting to kill him. This just pushes them right over the edge. Because they couldn't accept that idea at all. That Jesus was claiming he would exercise a function that the Jews universally held belonged to God alone, not even to the Messiah. So now he's pushing way up and beyond their expectations of what even the Messiah would do if they believed he was the Messiah. So it is an astonishing new thought to the Jew. But as you move on through the Bible and you see that people accept Christ as the Messiah, come to know God through him, that it became a very accepted thing that God would judge the world through Jesus Christ. So that in the book of Acts, why don't you just take your Bible and turn there to Acts chapter 17 to verse 31. They did not deny that the Father would be the judge. But they understood the Father would judge the world through his Son. And that is exactly what is going to happen. 
But we see it in their preaching. In Acts 17.31, they said, Because he has appointed a day, speaking of God the Father, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, that's Jesus, whom he has ordained. And here is the sign that God has given to all the world that Jesus Christ will be the judge of all the world. It is the resurrection. It says right here, And he has given assurance of this reality to all men. How? By raising him from the dead. By raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the most well-documented realities in the history of humanity. If you study it, every time you read of someone who has gone to disprove the resurrection and how they went to do a detailed study of it, you find them resurfacing, converted. Because all these lawyers throughout history have gone to disprove the resurrection with their brilliant legal minds and they go in and they find that all the evidence all the details is so overwhelming that Jesus Christ could be none other than the Son of God and that the truth of his resurrection from the dead has to be an undisputable fact and they end up getting converted so what is the sign to all men that God will judge the world through Jesus Christ it is the documented fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead he rose his son from the dead as a sign to all that he will be the judge. So this view here in Acts sees the Father and the Son moving and acting together as one in all matters of salvation. And that is exactly the point of John chapter 5, verse 22, where Jesus says that he will be the judge. And may I say that that judgment, when it is rendered by Christ, will be perfect judgment. Perfect judgment. If you do not have your sins forgiven today by the blood of Jesus, if you don't know God, if you haven't come and asked the Lord to forgive you for your sins and to live within you and to take you in a new direction in life, if you're unforgiven, you will be judged by Jesus Christ. He will either be your Savior or your judge. When He judges you, there will be no miscarriage of justice. You know how bad things are in our day. Some of us are upset at the miscarriages of justice in our day. It goes in both directions. For example, I read about a guy named Rom Eaton, who spent 16 years in prison even though he was innocent. At the end of that time behind bars, he made this observation. He said, I didn't have a dime in my pocket or a friend in the world when they put me on trial for armed robbery. And he said, that's why I spent 16 years in prison for a crime that was committed by two other men while I was 1,700 miles away when it happened. He said, I'm free now, completely vindicated, but life played a dirty trick on me in circuit court. It happens. One of the tragedies of our world is a miscarriage of justice. But know this. When Jesus Christ sits on his throne to judge men and women, there will be no miscarriage of justice. He will do it, mark it, with an omniscient mind. He will do it with a mind that knows every single detail about your life. He will have missed nothing. In fact, he's so careful about it that he's having everything written down in books. And those books will be produced with a record of your life. 
so that no one will be able to stand before Jesus Christ and say he got a bad rap or he was a victim of a dirty trick or something like that. Because the books will be open and the record of the life will be laid bare. And the critical issue is going to be this. What did you do with the Son of God? And your heart will be laid bare as to how you responded to Him in all of the advances of God on your heart. All those times God warmed your heart. All those times God was wooing you with His love. All those times, if you remain unsaved, that you knew there was something supernatural happening to you. And that's what you will be held accountable for. And then you will be sent into everlasting darkness out of the presence of God for your rejection of Christ. He will be your judge. But then you will be punished for every unatoned sin, every unforgiven sin. You'll be condemned for one sin, rejecting Christ, and then you will be punished for all your sins in a body that will go on forever and ever with no outlet. Heavy. Hey, listen, here you can run it all out. Oh, I don't care about God. I'm not into that religious thing anymore and all of this. And besides, I just love the party so much. I just, oh man, I got to get all the gusto. Like, wow, man, it's just so rad in my life. I just have to do it. Listen, fine, okay? But when you're in hell, you will be in a body with no outlet for any of this. And your lust will be as real as it was here, only with no outlet. And that is why it says that it's a place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched because of the torment and the agony of your soul of having this craving lust within you with no outlet whatsoever forever. I'm telling you, how much better to come and ask Christ to forgive you for your sin, to ask Him to change you so that you can go in a different direction, and to become one who knows where you're going and to become one who can render the honor to the Son that is due His name. I can't tarry with this judgment issue. I'm getting into next week's message already. I don't know how that happened. That's why I never study in advance for what's coming next. I'll just preach it. You get desperate up here. You understand that, don't you? <laughs> desperate for material as you're moving along. Look at all your faces. So all judgment will be rendered by Christ as God. We'll get on into that further. But another thought that I want to take you to and finish up with is this. That when we read in John 5.22, the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son. Notice, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is why he even brings up the idea of judgment to get to this point. He'll talk about judgment more in a few verses. He's wanting to make this point here. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Notice again verse 23, that all. That means all. Do you realize how narrow that is? People say, you Christians, you're so narrow-minded. You know, I could handle it if you were just a little more broad in your thinking, but you're so narrow-minded. That's the very thing I can't tolerate about you Christians and your Christianity and your Jesus. How could you be that way? 
You know what the right answer is to that? You're absolutely 100% right. We are totally narrow-minded. We don't, it doesn't come any more narrow-minded than this. You see, all should honor the Son. And all that don't will be condemned. It, there is nothing more narrow than that. And so, you know, I, I used to get real uncomfortable and try to, you know, give a cool vibe when people say, you guys are so narrow and how could you be so narrow? Your message is so narrow. And I would try to, you know, mealy-mouth my way out of it. Now I just said, you got it. Man, are you smart. Boy, you get things fast. You know, you're one of the fastest people I've witnessed to about Christ. Man, there's hope for you after all. That all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. You know what Jesus is saying? He is saying there is no relationship to God without honoring Christ as God. So that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. You see, either you honor the Son with the same honor you give to the Father, or you're dishonoring the Father. These people that say, you know, I'm so happy for you, and you found Jesus and all of that, and he was such a good man. You know, like I said a few weeks ago, he was so full of aloha and all that. He was such a good man. I'm happy for you, but I don't need Jesus. You see, all my life I've loved God. And they go, oh, maybe, maybe there is a loophole. They seem so kind. They, so they're more loving than some of the most, you know, biblically literate Christians. I've loved God all my life. Now I'm happy for you. You should be happy for me. We both love God. No. No, there is no relationship with God without honoring the Son of God. You either love and honor Christ as God or you don't love God. And that is not my message. That is the message of the Bible. There's no relationship to God without honoring Christ as God. And the idea is that you dishonor God's messenger and you dishonor Him in the simplest sense. You remember in the Old Testament when the king that David knew had died and the people of Ammon were upset. It says in 2 Samuel 10.1, it happened that the king of the people of Ammon died and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David felt bad about it, so he sent some people over, some messengers over, to encourage the new king. He said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. But you know what happened? Here David is sending these servants to encourage them, and what happened is that this Hanan turned to his advisors and they said, This isn't a friendly gesture on the part of David. Don't you get it? He's sending his guys here to spy you out. And then he's going to bring an invasion after his spies go back. This isn't a friendly gesture. It is a spy gesture. And he's going to make war on you. And so this guy Hanan got all mad and he shaved off half the beards of these guys, cut off half their clothes, and sent them back, all humiliated. David then got mad and came and invaded them with the war that he had no intention of bringing on them. Same way with God. God sends His messenger. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, God who at sundry times in diverse manners, in many places, in different ways, in different parts, spoke to us through the prophets. But now in these latter days He has come and spoken to us. Literally, the Greek is in Son. In His Son. God stepped on planet Earth to tell us the way. And it was in Jesus Christ. 
And they took him and they mistreated him and they beat him and they crucified him. If you reject the Son, you have rejected God. You reject His messenger, you reject Him. What you do to the Son, you're doing to the Father. You don't know God apart from Christ. And you can make up your own religion. And you can say, I'll come in my own way and I believe in God and I'll find God in my own way in my own time. And, and we must all find our own way. This is not a Forrest Gump life. You're going to have to find your own way, Forrest. You know, it, life is not a box of chocolates. Mama, what's my destiny? You're going to... No, I'm sorry. You don't make it up. God has spelled it out. J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. And He is the way. And if you will not honor Him, you will dishonor God. And you will not know the salvation that you can only find in Jesus Christ. A half clap over there. <laughs> I love what J.C. Ryle said. He said, No man ever errs on the side of giving too much honor to God the Son. That is so right. Do you realize we're going to spend forever in heaven honoring Christ? You know, I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I don't know what it's going to feel like. But I can look in my Bible and see a preview of many of us in heaven worshiping Christ. The joy and the honoring of Christ is so intense I can get a vicarious glimpse into what heaven will feel like, the gratitude I will feel, by watching us in a preview in heaven that God has given us in Revelation. And I want to take you there and we'll stop there. You see, in heaven, Christ will be honored as God. The people that are going there are the ones that want to honor Him as God here. And we honor Him in our feebleness here. We honor Him with our sinful condition, our weakened human condition. We bathe in His grace and His glory and His forgiveness and we honor Him, we extol Him, we worship Him. But when we get there, it's going to be unbridled adoration and praise and gratitude that's going to go on forever. And here's a preview. Revelation 5.8, this is a preview of coming attractions. And we're not talking about some movie here, folks. This will be your life. This will be your life. Revelation 5.8 Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the new earth, the new heaven, the new earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The Greek word is myrion. There's no higher number than 10,000 myrion and from which we get the word myriads. It's myriads upon myriads. It's an innumerable number. And in verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor 
and glory and blessing. And you read through this and the enthusiasm is so high. And I'll tell you why. When we get there, it's going to be better than we thought it would be. In our wildest imaginations, we cannot embrace all that God is going to have for us. When we get there, the reason we see this kind of enthusiasm is because the experience of heaven is going to be so overwhelming, it's going to literally pull the praises out of us to worship and adore the Savior that brought us there. And so in verse 13 it says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And those that honor the Son here will be those that honor the Son there. Do you honor him here? Is he your Savior? Or are you one of those who say, Oh, I've always loved God. And me and God, we're so close. But as for Jesus, I don't need him. Listen, you need him more than you need anything else in life. And if you leave life without him, you will spend forever without what you need most. And that is a long-standing eternal relationship with the Creator who put the first breath of life into you when you came into this world and is on the end of every breath until he decides it's time for you to leave this world. You need him. And if you don't know him, he stands with outstretched arms to you today. And all there is between you and him in eternity with him forever is for you to be humble and confess your sin, ask him to forgive you, be willing to turn from your life to take the new life he gives to you. Ask him to come and be your Lord and your Savior. You come to him and he will receive you. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time together with you and your word. And thank you for the abundance of the Christian life, the hope that is before us. And thank you, Lord, that the way you work within us causes us to long to give you the honor that is so due your holy name. And we're so excited, Lord, to see the enthusiasm of the saints in heaven around your throne worshiping you as they experience the glory that is there. So, Lord, we thank you. We worship you, we bless you, and we adore you as our Savior, our Lord, and our God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.